passage tonight comes from James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let me pray before we get into this. Father, this isn't hypothetical for any of us in the room. Nothing that we talk about these Wednesday nights is hypothetical, but tonight as we talk about suffering, it's something that's very close, very front burner for everyone in the room. So we pray, I pray that tonight you would lift us above the chaos and the distraction of our own circumstances. We can get tunnel vision, we can get the fog of war in our own trials. Would you let these next few minutes together be calm and clear that you would let us see you and your mercies to us in the midst of what is hard or confusing. I pray this in your name, Father. Amen. Well, I read an article last week and it was making the case that the U.S. military is one of the last institutions in American culture that can consistently and effectively transform people. When I was an RUF intern way back in the day, um, I had a few students who, after they graduated from UGA, went into the military. They went to OCS, Officer Candidate School, or boot camp, Marines or Air Force, and it was remarkable that when I would run into them years later after they had been through boot camp and had become soldiers, it was remarkable to me how different they were on the other side of that process. You know, it was the physical things. They'd lost weight. They were chiseled. They'd bulked up. They had different posture. Now, what's impressive about this process is that this isn't like a paper-thin transformation. It's not just that these people now know how to fire a gun or do hand-to-hand combat or can run a mile at a faster pace. It changes their character. That's what's remarkable about remarkable about it. it changes their character. And we know this because that character is battle-tested after boot camp. For a, for a lot of generations of people who go through this, they actually end up in combat or in war. And you see people who are calm under pressure, who can make clear decisions in chaos, who have confidence to move towards danger. So how does the military do it? Whether you agree with that thesis or not, like how does the, the U.S. military do it? How do they squeeze what's normally decades of maturation and adulting and growing up into a few months? The way they do it is, Um, Everything about boot camp is designed to break the civilian you down and to rebuild you back up as a Marine or a soldier. 
It's a complete deconstruction of old you so that there can be a reconstruction of new you. It deforms you so that it can reform you. Breaks down old you to build up new you. The pain that those cadets experienced during their training, the dangers that they faced in that controlled environment, protected them and prepared them for pains and dangers that could kill them later on in an uncontrolled environment if they had not been protected and prepared ahead of time. Big picture, James is saying something similar in, his, in the opening to his letter here. He's saying, in a sense, suffering is like SEAL training for the sons and daughters of God, for Christians. And again, we'll talk about this in a minute, but James is talking to believers, people who, like him, have encountered the resurrected Jesus. You have seen too much. You know too much. You've read too much. There's no going back. You know he's real. You know he's alive. You know he's powerful. And you love him. And you know he loves you. And James is saying, for those people, for Christians, suffering, trials of many kinds, is SEAL training. It's boot camp. It's an intentional exposure to pain and danger under controlled conditions so that it prepares you, protects you from greater dangers and greater pains later on in life, in the chaos of life. And for James, faith is what's most important. It's, it's the training of your faith, the testing of your faith, the protection of your faith, the solidification of your faith. That's what James is saying is in view here. That's what, that's what the outcome is of this kind of training and this kind of suffering. He's saying there's more going on in your suffering and in what's hard in your life right now than might meet the eye. There's intention behind it. There's purpose and hope and trajectory behind it. There's a goal, a goal to it in that pain. And it's doing some of the things that boot camp does. It, it, it is breaking parts of you down that are harmful to your future and harmful to your faith so that it can build back up what is new, what is good, what is Christ-like. So it is, in a sense, suffering for the Christian is, in a sense, a deconstructing, um, a breaking down of what is holding you down and holding you back that there might be a reconstructing and a filling out of new you. So what's happening here, James is giving you a new paradigm for what is hard and confusing and kind of stinks in your life. He's giving you a new way to look at it. And he says, when you meet trials of many kinds, not if, and he's not saying if you do these things, then you won't have to suffer or encounter trials of various kinds. He's assuming it's going to happen. You're going to suffer as a Christian. You're going to meet trials of various kinds. Social suffering, economic, or financial suffering, relational suffering, vocational suffering, physical suffering, various kinds. And he's saying you can't control if and how trials will affect you. But he's presuming, because he's telling you how to interpret your suffering, he's presuming you can control how you think about your suffering, how you make sense of and interpret your trials. 
That's what he says. Consider. He's saying, he's appealing to your mind. He's saying, how are you making sense of what's going hard in your life? And he's, and he's offering, God himself, through James, is offering you a different lens to look at the hard places, a different way to interpret them. Real quick, how does James define suffering? How does he define suffering? What counts in the category of trials of various kinds or suffering? Well, look down at verse 5. He helps us out here with a little bit of a hint. And uh, his hint in verse 5 is, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Why does he go into this, if any of you lacks wisdom, right after he's talking about trials of various kinds and trials producing steadfastness and faith and perseverance, why does he go into talking about wisdom? Is this like a non sequitur? He's jumping to a new topic? No. He's saying, look, what is suffering? Suffering is anything that makes you cry out to God, Lord, help. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like an idiot. I feel clumsy. I don't know how to get through this situation. I don't know what's going on. I've never been here before. I feel like I'm the only one. I'm disoriented. I don't know which way's up. Anything that makes you cry out, Father, give me wisdom. Help me understand how to live through this, how to survive this. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I'm scared. I'm poor. I lack. That's what suffering is. So again, what counts according to God's definition? I want to bring this way down to earth so that you realize how practical James is getting and and you can begin to see and learn how to count suffering. Here's some things. Um, Being newer to town or new, like if you've only been here three weeks. So tonight when you got here, you got here 10 minutes early. You looked through that window. You didn't see anyone you knew in this room, so you got back in your car, and you sat there, and you kind of talked yourself off the cliff. You might have prayed. And then you put your game face on. You showed a lot of courage to walk into a room filled with people that you don't know very well or don't know at all. And James would say, do you count that as a trial, the drive over here, the 2 o'clock on a Wednesday, and you're like, am I going to go? Am I not going to go? I kind of want to go, but I really don't want to go. Are you going to count that as a trial, the the isolation, the loneliness that you feel, the awkwardness that you feel? Do you count it? Or do you just beat yourself up and say, man, I wish I just had a different personality. I wish I was an extrovert. I wish, why am I so scared? Why can't I walk into the room? Or do you blame people and you're like, well, if they had done this or done that, then I could have felt more at home here. How do you interpret it? Do you count it as suffering or do you discount it as something else? And you don't get to see God in that. What's your paradigm? What about this? You went through rush. And your best friends got bids and you didn't. Or, you know, most of the girls on your hall went through rush, but a few of you didn't. And now they seem to have all bonded just by going through rush together. And you never get texted or invited to anything anymore. And it's week three and you wonder if you've missed the social train it left the station without you on it. Is that suffering? Is that a trial? Yes, it is. You battle intrusive thoughts all day. Before you even have a first conscious thought, you have these intruders in your mind that tell you the worst things about God or about yourself. 
or about your past? Are you in your early 20s or your late teens? You are at the absolute peak of sexual drive, of your hormones. But you're not married, so you don't have a legitimate expression, a place to enjoy that sex drive with a husband or a wife. And so you feel like just captured in this. Does it disorient you? Does it leave you exasperated? Does it leave you at the end of your rope? Is it suffering? Well, it is, because it fits James's definition of it. Your migraines that knock you out from a lot of good nights with your friends. Barely able to keep your head above water in organic or engineering or biochem. Social anxiety. Ongoing struggles against your addictions or besetting sin patterns. You know, something, something like uh, you th- a breakup. And you're like, I'm so stupid. It's a silly boy. Why am I still stuck on this? Or she broke up with me a year ago and I can't stop thinking about her. Why? Like, what is wrong with me? Why can I get over this? Here's, here's what I'm getting at, y'all. Here's what I'm getting at. Everyone in this room is suffering trials of various kinds. So the difference in here is not that some of us have dramatic stories and we're going through a lot and have suffered and some of us aren't. Everybody's suffering. Um, The difference is some of us are counting our suffering as suffering and therefore are having the opportunity to count on God in our suffering. And some of us are discounting our suffering. Discounting it of like, oh, well, someone out there, someone else out there in the world is suffering worse than me, and so this doesn't really matter. Or discounting it like, well, I should be more mature. This shouldn't bother me as much as it is. You know, I need to just grow up or trust God more or pray more or read my Bible more or go to RUF more or whatever. Don't you get it? Like, this is how we discount, discount our suffering and therefore don't even have an opportunity to count on God in that suffering. We lie to ourselves. And in doing so, we push away the very God who is nearest to us in our suffering. That's the big tragedy here. You'll miss him because you have your head in the sand. You're kind of trying to fix your problems, not bring them to him, or redefine your problems, or deny your problems, or get distracted from your problems. And so, again, we drift away from him. But if you do, like let's say already the wheels are turning in your mind and you're like, okay, maybe if it's a big deal to me, maybe if it's troublesome to me, maybe if it's left me feeling like I'm spinning my wheels or I'm stuck, I'm disoriented, I'm lost, maybe he says that counts. So maybe you're with, maybe you're following me, maybe you're coming along, but now you're wondering, Well, okay, if I count on him in this thing that I'm now counting suffering, will he care? Is his heart pricked with compassion when I'm hurting and crying out for help? Or when I'm like, where my suffering is apathy and I'm not crying out for anything, I'm not hurting, but I just feel numb? Is his heart pricked with compassion? This is one of those things where you're going to have, like faith in action is going to look like um, 
Well, he tells me that he cares. You might not feel it. I mean, that's part of the disorientation of suffering, is it puts you in the fog. So he says, he tells us, it's not our wishful thinking, he said, I'll just give you a few, Psalm 34, 18. He says, I'm near to the brokenhearted. I save the crushed in spirit. He says, Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed, like a river reed, when it gets wet and soggy and kind of falls over or breaks, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering candle wick I will not snuff out. That's how careful he is, tender, gentle, detail-oriented to his people in their suffering, that a smoldering candle wick that's barely even got a glow of an ember on it, he can care for that so that it doesn't burn out. He can hold a bruised son, a bruised daughter in such a gentle way that they don't break. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul has it in the third person. I'll put it in the first person from God's point of view. He says to you, I'm the father of compassion. Or in other words, I'm the headwaters. I'm the source of compassion. I'm the God of all comfort. And I comfort you in all your troubles so that you can comfort others in their troubles. In other words, God is such a comforter that even as he comforts you, he's concerned that you go and comfort other people in their troubles. That's how compassionate he is. This is the best of all. Hebrews 2.18. Christianity is the only, the only religion, belief system that's ever existed with a God who can not just sympathize with suffering, but empathize. Hebrews 2.18, because Jesus himself has suffered when he was tempted during his life here on earth, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, those who are going through trials of various kinds. Now, um, those earlier verses talked about the, the God's willingness to comfort you, um, his trustworthiness for you to count on him in your suffering. This Hebrews verse is talking about his ability to be there with you, for you, and supporting you in your suffering, to be God to you in your suffering. How? Because he has suffered. The difference in sympathy and empathy is sympathy is like if your parents got divorced and you went to a friend, their parents had never gotten divorced in a happy marriage, but they had a, they're very caring. And they put their arm around you and said, I'm so sorry, and heard you out. Empathy is if your parents got divorced and you have another friend whose parents got divorced, and as soon as you said half the sentence, she just she starts tearing up and she comes to you and you don't even have to talk to her. She just embraces you, and you know she knows. She gets it. Did you know, friends, you have a God 
who can empathize with the hard and the confusing and the disorienting and the agonizing and the devastating in your life. Not sympathize because he's omniscient and he can figure it out and connect the dots intellectually because he's God, but who can empathize, who has felt it, who knows what a sleepless night is like, who knows what it's like to be so dog-tired from weeping, who knows what it's like to get a terrible phone call that your friend has died. That's the God of the Bible. That's Jesus. So again, back to the point. Can you count on him and cry out to him in your suffering? Joni Erickson Tata um, is a woman, a theologian, a Christian. She's amazing. She's written a good number of books. Um, some point through her life, she might be in her 60s and maybe halfway through her life, had a traumatic spinal cord injury. And I think she's a, I think she's either a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. And she has found... Jesus, meet her in her paralysis. And she has found him to be Jesus for her in that valley of the shadow of death. He has shepherded her and walked with her. She said this, she she knows the heart of God for sufferers in the valley. She says, there is nothing that moves a loving father's soul quite like his child's cry. And as a dad... I can confirm. You know, when I hear my kids, or Anna hears our kids in the middle of the night, uh, or they come crying to me, um, we don't sit there and like debate whether it's legitimate or not that they're scared, or whether the monster they dreamed about is real, or whether, you know, they have a fever and don't feel good. Like, as soon as we hear their cry, we are out of bed, on the ground with them, on our knees, embracing them, holding them, What do you need? That's the heart of a father triggered by the cry of his daughters, the cry of his sons. And friends, I'm evil, I'm broken, and I'm not a perfect dad. God is righteous. He is love. He is the perfect father. Can you imagine how he, how he is moved with compassion at your cries? After all, he has saved you. He didn't spare Jesus to bring you back to himself. You are his. He's adopted you. Don't you know the sound of your cry in his ear moves him to action, moves him to compassion? That's why James says in in, um, verse 6, or sorry, uh, the second part of verse 5, that's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, hey, here's a thought. Ask God. Go to your Father. Parentheses, who gives generously. He's not stingy. He's generous. He is predisposed to giving. He is a giver. So James says, ask him. He's generous. He loves to give. He will give you the wisdom you seek. Didn't say he'll give you the outcome you seek. Like, I I pray that you will please um, make this professor whose class I'm failing, pass me. He didn't say he'll give you the specific outcome you seek. He said he'll give you the wisdom. He'll give you himself in that suffering. And he goes on to say, and he will give generously without finding fault. And it'll be given to you. He means that God's not going to nitpick your prayer apart and hand it back to you and say, hey, try again. That wasn't phrased the right way. Or you didn't mean it enough. 
You know, he doesn't return to your paper like a, like a draft that your professor gave back to you just dripping in red ink. God is not looking for reasons to not give you the help, the comfort, um, the wisdom that you seek. He is bent towards giving. That's his character. That's his heart. Now, James says something after this that anyone in the room with a sensitive conscience or a scrupulous, meticulous conscience that picks up on things like this, you'll read in verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You hear that and you're like, man, I was following you up until this point. You had actually raised up my hopes. I was encouraged. And now I'm body slammed back down because it seems like James has just raised the bar to an unattainable standard of perfection. Your prayer for wisdom must be perfect. No doubting, no weakness. That's not what he's saying though. He's not saying that you must believe hard enough in a, in a particular outcome or believe, or he's, the reason that doesn't work is that is putting faith in your faith. It's putting your faith in the fervency of your belief or your prayer. You're not expecting God to do something for you in that scenario. You're expecting your faith to do something for you. You're actually putting your faith in yourself. You're pinning your hopes on the quantity and the quality of your faith or your prayer or your devotion or your sincerity. And that's not faith in God at all. James is not saying that. And James is also not saying that you need to rebrand legitimately bad things that are happening, legitimately bad suffering as good. To count something as joy, to count suffering as joy, does not negate counting it as sadness, frustration, um, disappointment, confusion, agony. To count something as, to, as an opportunity for joy does not mean you, you put lipstick or a silver lining on something that God himself hates, something that God himself calls an intruder to this good world he made, and something that God himself says he is going to eradicate in the new heavens and the new earth. God's not rushing you to a place of saying, oh, well, I lost my best friend, but I guess God's making me stronger. He has none of that. That's Job's friends, and God rebuked them. He is not asking you to, like, interpret out your grieving. In fact, he's giving you permission to grieve, permission to move slowly through that. So he's not asking you to rebrand it. That's not what James is talking about either. What James is saying in this, that there must be no doubting is, um, you need to become clear with the God you're praying to and what he's like, which is everything we've been talking about up to this point. Everything we've been talking about up to this point is, you know, God and what his character and what his heart is like. James is saying you need to be clear about that when you pray to him. Is there alive and active in the core of your being blasphemy against him? Just this ongoing narrative about he's not good, he doesn't give, he doesn't care, he's indifferent to me. He's not, he's not present with me in my suffering. 
Is there in you just a constant listening to satanic unbelief, just accusing God of being the devil? James is saying that person with this spirit of accusation against God, the spirit of animosity against God, who's, who's kind of praying and asking for this, that person should not assume they'll receive anything from God. They're double-minded. So what's the solution if you're that person? Go back to square one and ask yourself, wait a second, who is this God? Who is Jesus? What is he like? How does he say he relates to and deals with and supports and holds sufferers. So if that's you, you've got to go back to scroll and say, what kind of God am I dealing with after all? And who am I listening to tell me what he's like? Who am I listening to? My gut, my intuition, myself, or him? So again, does this all mean that James is saying, well, you have to have 100% confident certainty at all times. Your faith has to be perfect. No, listen to this. There is a world of difference between you being aware of how weak and insufficient your faith is versus you believing that God himself is weak and insufficient. Jesus has a reputation. Jesus was so compassionate. He welcomed the struggling faith and struggling weak belief of his disciples. Oh, you were slow of heart to believe, but he, but he didn't kick them out. Doubting Thomas. Lord, I can't believe unless I see your wounds. Jesus accommodated that weak faith. Jesus said the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. So we know from elsewhere in scripture, weak and insufficient, weak faith is not a deal breaker to God. But you believing that God is weak, that he is insufficient, that he is in deficit, that's something that sends you back to square one to say, what kind of God am I dealing with? Now, where I want to end and where we need to wrap this up is, James says, consider it an opportunity for joy when you suffer these trials. He doesn't say the trials themselves or the suffering itself is joyful. He says, consider it an opportunity for joy. Why? Because let me go just, I'm not going to repeat it, but I'm going to go back to the boot camp How can those soldiers or those SEALs being trained out in California, how can they count it as joy, the pain that they're going through? Because they know what it is making them into. How can the Christian consider what she's going through as a joy? Because she knows her father is at work. There's intention and purpose and a goal and fruit that's coming out of the pain And that fruit, friends, is the things that you would cut your leg off to have. You'd give anything away, right? To have peace, inner peace, a calm confidence in your God, a deeper faith, endurance to get through any kind of trial. Don't you want what verse 3 and what verse 4 talk about? Well, how does it come? God allows you to go through valleys of the shadow of death, valleys of dark suffering, trials of various kinds. And in that process, he allows perseverance to finish its work so that you may become mature and complete. How do they fit decades of growing up into a few months in the U.S. military and it produce a transformed person? Boot camp. How does God fit 
centuries of growth and formation into the image and shape of Jesus into a few decades, suffering and trials of various kinds. God is agreeing with your deep desire to grow in him, to have a simple childlike faith, to trust him no matter what comes, to bless his name even if you lose it all, to say, though you slay me, I will trust you. Don't you want that? God wants it. And he says, amen, I will give you that. And the way he gives it to you are these trials of various kinds. Here's where we have the greatest hope of all hopes, friends. What makes suffering safe for the Christian? What makes suffering safe for the Christian is that what Jesus was doing on the cross, he was fighting for his people, he was defeating your enemies, he was atoning and substituting himself for the punishment you deserved. He was cleansing you from your sins, but hear this. Jesus was attacking and defeating the original source and cause of all the suffering in the world, which is sin, evil, and the curse that it led to. Jesus is overturning all of that as he fights on the cross for his people. On the cross, he is hijacking suffering itself and turning it into a servant and a friend in a force for good, a force for formation and Christ-likeness in the lives of his people, friends. Jesus has defanged suffering. He's taken the poison out of suffering, even death. That's why it's safe for you. That's why no matter the suffering you experience, it is under controlled conditions where your Lord, your Redeemer, who gave his life for you and intercedes for you day and night now, if it's in his hands, you're safe, even as it hurts. So some takeaway points and some places you can trust him and hold on to him in the week ahead. First, scan your life for trials that you've been discounting or explaining away or denying or ignoring, find them and count them. The second, once you count them, say, Father, you have my attention. I'm counting this now because you count it. Now help me count on you in this suffering. My hope is not getting out of this suffering. It's okay to pray for that, but my, I'm not pinning my hopes on getting out of this suffering my hope is that you're in this suffering with me. My shepherd is in the valley of the shadow of death with me. That's why I fear no evil. Last, learn to prize Jesus more than anything else in the midst of that suffering. How do you do that? You pay attention to what he's doing with you in that suffering. As he pulls you closer to him, you pull closer to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Return to him and he will return to you. Those are tangible things that we can start stepping forward towards by faith this week, empowered by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are big things that we've asked for. Um, thankfully, this isn't all up to us. You are up to something so much bigger and better and more beautiful than just what our efforts are putting in or our plans or our faith. You are overseeing a process where you are making us more like you. So have your way with us. Help us to rejoice in it with you. We pray it in your name.